This week we are studying some of the accounts of the last week of Jesus Christ. Being that it is Passion Week, we had Palm Sunday, where we took a look at Jesus and his triumphant entry into Jerusalem. And as he was entering Jerusalem, there was this great celebration for who he was and entering as Messiah to his people, the Israelites. See, the Israelites had been waiting there long, long for Messiah. And they were looking for freedom. They were looking for freedom from oppression, freedom from, from darkness. You see, they were, they were right at this time under the authority of the Roman government. They had been enslaved year before that, before the Romans. It was the Greeks, and before the Greeks, the Medes and the Persians, and before them, the Babylonians. And they sought to worship God in their temple. And they were waiting for their Messiah to come to give them that freedom. But they were looking at their world as being free from the government, being free from man. But when Jesus came, he had intended them to be free from sin and free from death. His full and complete plan in the end, in the long run, in eternity, is freedom from all of that, all from man, from government. But when Jesus came to this world as a human being, the world didn't understand what he was doing. See, even his own disciples were expecting him to take over, to take over uh, and to throw down Rome and to become the king uh, of their nation. And so as his disciples were getting closer to him and they saw the multitudes that he was drawing, they were getting excited. They're like, wow, this is, this is the Messiah and he's going to be king. And there were times when they would even begin to gather with the multitudes and say, okay, let's make him king now. Let's get him to the throne. And in those moments, Jesus would separate himself because it wasn't time for that. It wasn't his time to become the king of this world. You see, he still had to work in the hearts of man. And he had a work to accomplish. He was preparing to go to the cross that he would give us a relationship with God the Father, based not on works, but on our faith in Jesus Christ. The prophet Isaiah, he, he says something in his prophecies. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 18 and 19, he says this. Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. You see, sometimes when, when God does things, understand that it's going to be way beyond what we are picturing. When God has a plan, sometimes we try to insert our plan. But the Bible teaches us a man plans his ways but the Lord directs his steps. So who knows what Jesus has planned for you in your life? What exciting adventure of life does he has in store for you? I can testify that I would have never dreamed that he would take me to the places I've gone, met the people I've met, seen the things I've seen, and it's all to his glory. We're, tonight, uh, as now Jesus is, is showing them, he's been explaining to his disciples, look, this is how we have a relationship with God the Father, which was through him. This last week of his life, he's really gathering his disciples to himself, and he's pouring into them. So tonight, as Jesus gathers with his disciples, he prepares to have with them the Last Supper. You guys have seen the Last Supper before. Uh, you've seen even the picture where they're all 
on one side of the table, which is really weird. Why, why, why would they all be on one side of the table? But that's the Da Vinci picture. Actually, in, in their times, when they would have gathered for this supper, they would have laid back and reclined on these like pillows and couches, and, and, and the food would have been there for them to just dive into and, and have that fellowship right next to each other, where the Jewish people believed that you would, when you would break bread with someone, and you would eat that bread, and then the next person would also have that bread and dip it into the same dip. Everyone was dipping in the same bowls. They weren't scared of the germs at that time. <laughs> but they believed that the food that they consumed, that it was that one piece of bread, now it's all becoming part of each other. And because of that, they saw this as deep fellowship, that they were becoming one with each other as they were partaking of the same meal. Now Luke records and he documents what happened at the Last Supper. In Luke chapter 22, beginning with verse 7, it says this, Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. So they're having now this, this celebration of Passover. There are three major festivals that the Jewish people would celebrate. One of the most important ones is Passover. Want to know what's super cool? Is that tonight, once the sun goes down, it's officially the Jewish Passover. April 8th starts this week. And it, it, it lasts for eight days, or from now until next Thursday. So there, there's uh, an excitement party right now going on in Israel where if you were to be there tonight by the, the Wailing Wall, by the Western Wall, you would see men and w women dancing and, and celebrating the Passover. And it's this really exciting thing. And it all goes back to the Old Testament. You guys have heard of, of the story of Moses when he, he led the children of Israel out of Egypt. Well, before Moses did that, God sent plagues to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians in order that the Pharaoh would let his people go. And the last plague that God sent to Pharaoh of Egypt was the angel of death. The angel of death went throughout the land of Egypt to take the life of all the firstborn children, firstborn sons, from young to old. And God told the Israelites through Moses, he told them that if they would just dip the blood of a, a lamb on their doorposts and the top and on the sides, top and the sides, that's like kind of the symbol of the cross, that the angel of death would over them and it wouldn't take their firstborn son. So that's where we get the idea of Passover. The angel of death, of death passing over the firstborn. So the Jews tonight are, are having this celebration. One of the other major feasts is Pentecost. You see, Pentecost was the ceremony and the celebration of first fruits. The Jewish people, when they had their, their season of, of great crops, they would take the first fruits in ceremony, and then they would offer it to God as an offering. And the Jews still celebrated Pentecost. And then the third of the major festivals was the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a celebration of God's protection of the Israelites when they journeyed in the wilderness and they were there in their tents and how God protected them through that. Now those are all the original Old Testament accounts that later became celebrations and holidays. Now, the interesting thing about those three feasts is that there is also a New Testament fulfillment of all these holidays. Now, Passover, being that it was a lamb that was sacrificed so that death would not harm the children, that is symbolic of Jesus, our perfect lamb, being sacrificed for our sins so that we would not have to experience 
eternal death in hell. And Jesus did that for us. That's the New Testament fulfillment. It's pointing to, the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus doing that. And then again with Pentecost, the festival of Pentecost, the first fruits being offered to God in ceremony. There's a New Testament fulfillment of that. Because on the day of Pentecost, when they were supposed to be celebrating that holiday, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls upon the church. And men and women begin speaking in tongues. And there's tongues of fire above their heads. And that's the Holy Spirit now being poured out onto his church, which we have in us now, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. Jesus said, it's better that I go because if I don't go, then the Holy Spirit, the helper, won't come to you. But now that Jesus has left, the Holy Spirit lives within us. Now, the Feast of Tabernacles, a lot of people see this, the celebration of God's protection of, of the temple, of the tabernacles, the tents that were there in the wilderness as being a future prophecy yet to be fulfilled of God's kingdom on this earth when the temple of God will be rebuilt and we'll be able to worship God, Gentiles and Jews alike, in Jerusalem in the future temple. So the Passover is what these disciples are, are celebrating. And this Passover would be one of the, the festivals, one of these three festivals where the Jews would actually journey to Jerusalem for. They had many ceremonies and many holidays, but these three they would take a trip to Jerusalem for. Now in verse 8, it says, And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. See, one thing to note about the Passover meal is that they would have been having lamb to eat. So keep in mind, Jesus is not a vegetarian. And I like that about him, because that means, cool, I have freedom in Christ. You know, I could eat meat. I can eat bacon if I want. And I love bacon. Jesus, also note that he came to this world in human form. He's eating just like all the other men he's with. You see, Jesus came as 100% human and 100% God. He wasn't a phantom where like he ate the food and it fell right through him. No, he was a living human being who bled just as we do. But he wasn't 50% Jesus and 50% God. He wasn't 50% human and 50% God. He was 100% human and 100% God. When Jesus was on the cross, when he was crucified, his humanity died. But his deity, the God in him, could never be killed. So those are the interesting theological definitions of, of how we see our God, Jesus being God. Now in verse 9 it says, So they said to him, Where do you want us to prepare? Now he's sending Peter and John. So they're asking, Okay, what do you want us, where do you want us to go? And in verse 10, And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man will meet you, carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house which he enters. Then you shall say to the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large furnished upper room. There make ready. So they went and found it, just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. Now we see another miracle of Christ. See, Peter and John are sent. Now, Peter and John, they were one of the two of the three disciples who Jesus kept really close to him. See, Jesus kept really close to him of the 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John. Now, James and John, they were brothers. They were known as the sons of thunder. 
And there were these rowdy guys who, when people would deny Christ, they would ask Jesus. They said, Jesus, do you want us to call fire down from heaven on these people who've denied you? And Jesus was like, oh, slow down there, sons of thunder. Now, and then Peter, that's Simon Peter. He too was one of these close disciples of Jesus, and he constantly is, is seen pouring into them. John is also known as John the Beloved. And it is true, Jesus did love John. John was able to, at this supper, rest on the chest of Jesus as they're having this, this supper. And we could see the, the love that was between Jesus and his disciple. In verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the 12 apostles with him. Then he said to them, with fervent desire, I have desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You see, Jesus had desired to fulfill the call which God put in his life. So he was longing for this opportunity to be able to have this fellowship with his disciples. He was anointed for this work. Again, in Luke's gospel in chapter four, we read this verse in verse 18. This is Jesus's mission right here. In Luke 4, 18, it says this. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So this is what Jesus was anointed to do. For those who are poor, brokenhearted, captives, blind, and oppressed, Jesus came to save those came to save us. And this was a spiritual brokenness. This was a spiritual captivity, a spiritual poverty, a spiritual blindness, a spiritual oppression. Jesus came to set us free from all of it. And in eternity, everything, the physical oppression, the mental oppression, the literal Now, Jesus, he's looking forward to do this with his disciples. He has this fervent desire, he says, to eat this Passover with them. And in verse 16, again, he says, For I say to you, I'm not going to eat of this until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's referring right here to the fulfillment of the new covenant. Where no longer do we have to live in the Old Testament way of relating to God through sacrifices, through priests, but we get to have fellowship with God directly through Jesus, who is God himself. So he's talking about the new covenant. You have that word, the old covenant, the Old Testament, which is the old promise, which is pointing to the promise of the Messiah, Jesus. And now we have the New Testament, which is the new covenant, the new promise, which is pointing to Jesus' return, his second coming, which has yet to happen yet. But we're so excited for it. We're awaiting the day when Jesus is going to come, take his church, when he's going to come and return to earth and right all the wrongs, when he's going to set us free fully and completely. This is referring to the new covenant now given to us in the New Testament from deliverance from sin and hell, the fulfillment in the future of the marriage supper of the Lamb in heaven, which is yet to come also. Where in heaven, we're going to be able to actually eat 
with God the Father in this marriage supper. And I'm sure in and out Burger is going to be there too. Now in verse 17, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, he gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup, the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So we have here communion. Jesus instituting communion with his disciples. Where he takes the the drink, the fruit of the vine, and says, this is my blood. The Bible teaches us that life is in the blood. Literally, Jesus' life being poured out, shed on the cross, and poured out onto us. Spiritually, his life upon ours. Where when God looks at us and sees his son's blood on us, he doesn't see the sins, but he sees us as his children. So they drink of this cup and they were supposed to drink of it in remembrance. And likewise, when they break the bread, his body was going to be broken. 39 times he's going to be whipped. They're going to put a bag over his face. And they're going to punch him in the face, the guards. And as they're punching him, they're going to say, prophesy who hit you. And then they're going to lead him, lead him to the cross. Before he gets on that cross, they make this crown out of the Palestinian thorns, which has these long, these long spikes in it. And they put it on his head. And they thrust it onto his skull. And then they led him to the cross. And they put nails in his hands and in his feet. This is his body being broken. So when they ate of the bread, it was to be in remembrance of what he was about to do on the cross for them. And that's why we still continue that. We continue that practice. We see the New Testament church still doing it. Where when we take of the bread and of the cup, we're just reminding ourselves of what Jesus did and who he is in our life. In verse 21, but behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table. And truly the son of man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Then they begin to question among themselves, which of them it was who would do this thing. The disciples, they don't understand why Jesus is is talking about this. They're like, what do you mean the betrayer is at hand? And they constantly were confused in Jesus' talkings. Because remember, they're, again, we're still expecting him. Okay, Jesus is going to take the throne in Rome, and we're going to be there. We're going to be set up so that our Jewish nation can finally be free from the oppression of Rome. But Jesus had a much bigger plan. He was going to save them from death eternally. Now, when he says my betrayer is at hand at the table, I'm I'm reminded that Judas was there. And Jesus, not in this gospel, but in John's gospel, chapter 13, he washes the feet of his disciples. And Judas would have been there. And he would have washed Judas' feet while knowing that Judas was going to betray him. And still he humbled himself 
And he took on the form of a servant. And he began to wash the feet of all of them. And then he even goes to Peter and he's about to wash Peter's feet. Peter's like, Jesus, you're not going to wash my feet. I won't let it happen. And Jesus explains to him, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, then you can have no part with me. And then so Peter's like, okay, well, then give me a whole bath. And Jesus is like, no, just the feet's good, Peter. And there was a, a symbolism of how here he is, their king, giving them this example of servanthood where even though he was their leader, he was serving them. And that's how we are to be in our lives. He explains this in, in actually the next verse, in verse 24. Now there was also a dispute among them as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus is here pouring out his heart before his disciples. Preparing them for the trial that's about to take him and them. And what do we see the disciples doing? They're arguing amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest. We saw it earlier in, in this gospel that James and John, their mother and themselves, would be debating on who would get to sit next to Jesus in his kingdom. And they got their mom to ask Jesus. They said, hey, mom, go ask, go ask. So the mom came to Jesus and said, Jesus, when you enter onto your throne, would you grant that my sons would sit on your left hand and on your right hand? And Jesus, I'm sure, kind of dismayed and heartbroken that they would ask such a thing, said, are they willing to drink of the cup that I am to drink? Meaning, are they willing to take on the full wrath of God for the sins of the world? The, the cup of, of death. And they said, when he asked that question, oh, we're willing, we're, we are willing. But they didn't really understand what Jesus was saying. They're like, yeah, we can do it. And Jesus, knowing what was going to come in their life, said, you will drink of the cup. But it's not for me to decide who sits on my left hand and on my right. That's reserved for my Father in heaven. So a lot of the times the disciples were so just, it was over their heads what Jesus was saying. And he had to really spell it out for them. Which, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that they didn't completely get it right away. Because then Jesus gets to kind of explain it in detail. So myself, who sometimes doesn't get it right away, most of the time I don't get it right away, I could glean from their lessons. But what is Jesus really trying to show his disciples. He's trying to show them servanthood. You know, in our world, we think that in order to be the greatest and top dog and to have success, that we are supposed to be served and have the pleasantries of life, that we are to be the masters. But in the kingdom of heaven, it's completely reversed. I think we're going to be surprised in heaven. I think we're going to be surprised on those people who receive the greatest gifts in heaven and those who receive very little. You see, here on this earth, when people praise you all the time, when they're congratulating you for your works, you have your reward here on earth. But for those 
servants of the Lord who are just serving quietly, patiently, who are in their prayer closet. Nobody knows. Nobody's giving them the cheers of applause. I know that there's reserved crowns in heaven for them. And I think we're going to be surprised who those people are. It's an encouragement for us to have that time of prayer where it doesn't always need to be public. Where it could be private. Where you have that relationship with the Lord. Where you're, I think some of the greatest blessings is to be praying for someone without them knowing and then to hear of how God is blessing their life. So that way you don't even get any of the credit for it. But we are to serve one another. And that's what ministry is about. It's about serving the Lord God and then serving others. I know just this past Sunday I was telling you guys that that's what the role of the ministry is. When you start to see and pastors tell you about how they need all this money so that they could fly in their fancy jets to, to spread the word of the Lord, know that there's a lot of false teachers out there. Look at who Jesus is and what he taught. Look at the word of God as your place for authority of what's truth, what's reality. In verse 28, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So these are the disciples who at this point have not yet left Jesus' side. They've been continuing in the trials of Jesus. There came a point when many of the disciples, uh, there is a large group of them, not the 12, but more the multitudes were following after Jesus and when he began to say eat of my flesh and drink of my blood speaking symbolically many of the people began to leave him because they were scared they're like we don't know this teaching this is scary to us but they didn't realize he was speaking symbolically and when many of the multitudes left Jesus turned to his disciples and said will you guys leave me also and then Simon Peter said, Jesus, where are we going to go? For you have the words of eternal life. And where will you go? When you see people leave the ministry, when you see people leave the faith, will you too follow? Or will you also realize that Jesus has the words of eternal life for you personally? And when Jesus is calling us, he's calling us into trial. This is one of the things that I, I, I wish wasn't promised to us, but it is. And I, I can't sugarcoat this. That as a believer, as a Christian, you are promised trials. But later on, the disciples, they would rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. James would say in, in his writing, in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Are we falling into various trials? Absolutely. Have we ever experienced a trial like this in our life? No, we've not. Not on a global scale. I've never experienced having to be quarantined in our, our homes for so long. Having to wear masks as we go out now to protect one another. And this is an enemy that we can't even see, a virus. But we know that this patience, this testing of our faith, it's producing patience. That word for patience, it's also known as long-suffering. 
And this long suffering, this patient work that is happening in us, it's perfecting us that we might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Meaning that God is using the trial, he's allowing the trial to happen in our life so that he can make us into something better, something that we can't do on our own. And God knows exactly what to allow to happen in your life so that you can be better, so that you can be drawn closer to him. See, everyone has their own school, I like to say. A spiritual schooling from God himself. See, some people need certain tests in their life. And they're going to be different tests than other people. So God knows exactly what type of spiritual schooling you need. What kind of tests to give you. When to give you breaks. When to give you uh, reward. And so that he's making us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ. Again, in verse 30 of that verse that we we read, or 29 and 30, he says, Just as my father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, the Bible, a lot of people think that the Bible teaches us not to judge one another. But the Bible actually teaches that we are to judge righteously. And that whatever type of judgment we place on somebody, it's also going to be measured the same to us. So we need to be careful. The Bible teaches us that we are to correct a person for the purpose of repentance and restoration in their life to God. And notice that those disciples were promised that they would be 12 judges of Israel. And that they would get to sit with him in the table in the kingdom. Receiving the same inheritance that Jesus himself is receiving. And they were going to have that sonship as we will have too, that sonship with them. And it's something that it's exciting that we get to receive the inheritances of Christ. In John chapter 3 verse 35 it says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So that's Jesus receiving all things from the Father. And then in Matthew 25, 34, it says, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we get to receive this glory. But the requirement to receive this is to suffer with Christ. A.W. Tozer, one of the the great pastors, authors of, of the Christian faith, was being discipled, and his discipler one day asked him, what do you want to be remembered by? And Tozer said, I want to be remembered as a man who loved God more than anyone else. And then his mentor warned him. He said, son, what you ask for is going to come with so much suffering. To love Christ more than anyone else means that you would be receiving the sufferings with Christ. When Jesus calls someone, he bids them come and die. I'm going to read uh, some, some verses out of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I'm going to read out of the New Living Translation for these verses. This is what Peter says, Simon Peter. Concerning trials, he says, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by his great mercy that we have been born again. Because God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance. An inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach and change of decay. 
and through your faith, God is protecting you by his power until you receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. So be truly glad there is a wonderful joy ahead, even though you must endure many trials for a little while. These trials will show you that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Through your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. You love him even though you have never seen him. Though you do not see him now, you trust him and you rejoice with a glorious, inexpressible joy. The reward for trusting him will be the salvation of your souls. So this is the glorious inheritance that Peter is referring to, from suffering to glory. Again, in Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, our suffering, it's temporary. Our life, it's this short little vapor in comparison to eternity. And when compared to the glory of God, it's, it's nothing. And the glory of God, it's going to be revealed in us. And we have hope for this. Where God is doing a work in our hearts and preparing us for eternity. Even in this trial that we're in today. God is doing a work. Again, in Romans, we know that the Bible teaches us that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his will, according to his purpose. So God is working out this situation right now with his church, with his people. I I truly miss fellowshipping with the listeners, with those who are there listening now one-on-one. I miss being able to have that fellowship of going out to eat and talking about the Lord with you guys and praying with you. But God is using this. God has a plan that's better than what we can understand. Maybe we're questioning, God, why are you allowing this to happen in our lives? God, people are dying. God, people are sick. They're hurting. And we can question God. And that's normal. It's normal to be an honest skeptic. So we have to fall back on what we do know. That God is good. That he loves us. He has a plan for our lives. He's working all things together for good. Back in Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, with verse 31. They're continuing now in their supper. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. Notice Jesus warning Peter. And in his warning, he tells him that Satan wants to sift him like wheat. What does that mean? You see, when they would sift wheat, what they would do is they would grab these large bundles of wheat and they would get this pitchfork usually and they'd stab it in there and they'd throw it up in the air and they would toss it and shake it and then beat it violently so that all the the grains of wheat would fall off of the chaff and they would fall off off the, the twigs and then they would separate the wheat from the chaff. And it was a very violent process as they were getting all the wheat off. And that's what Satan wanted to do to Simon Peter. He wanted to take Simon and then just violently attack him spiritually, mentally. I'm sure even physically. 
But notice that Satan asked for him. A lot of times in the Bible, we see that the devil has to ask permission before he greatly tests God's children. We saw that in Job. In Job's life, Satan was presented before the Lord and he began to ask God, let me get at Job. Let me test him. I know he's going to curse you. And Job didn't fail the test. And God allowed Satan to attack because God ultimately has a plan and he knows the hearts of men. In 1 Peter, Peter knowing of the attack of Satan, he writes this in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So Peter warned us, he warned the early church that Satan wanted to attack. And what does he say at the beginning of the verse? Be sober, be vigilant. Because he knows that's one of the greatest vices that the enemy uses in people's life. You know, right now, uh, well, as we're all under quarantine, I, I do see people turning to a lot of vices in their life right now because we, there's nothing else to do, they feel. We're alone, we're at home. Let's just get drunk and celebrate and whatever that is, it is that they might be, but they're turning to vices. When the Bible teaches us to be sober, not to be drunk. I've heard people tell me, oh, well, Jesus made wine. The Bible never teaches that Jesus got drunk. Jesus never got drunk. That would have been sin. And the Bible, it condemns drunkenness. So it's a warning for us that Satan is trying to devour us. He wants to get that foothold in our life so that he can completely tear us down. And he wanted to do this to Simon Peter. In verse 32, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. I love seeing this side of Jesus. Where he says, look, Peter, I've prayed for you. That your faith is not going to fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So he was getting them ready. Jesus knew, just like he knows that we're going to fail, he knew that Peter was going to fail. So he had already begun praying for him. It says he makes intercession, meaning he prays, intercedes, he intercepts. In Romans 8.34, it says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who also makes intercession for us? You see, and if Jesus is praying for us, what do we have to worry I'm so glad that he's there now praying for our protection. And the message to Peter was when he came back, when he got back up from his sin, was to strengthen his brethren. And that might be a word of the Lord for someone tonight. I believe it is. That if you've fallen, get back up and strengthen your brethren. Warn them of the attacks of the enemy. Point them back to God. And strengthen them. In verse 33. But he said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you know me. You see, Jesus loved Peter. But Peter would fail. And Jesus warned at him. Peter would end up denying him three times as after Jesus gets taken away and is being in this uh, illegal trial. People start to recognize as Peter's 
out standing by the, the fire of the enemy. He's there warming himself. And people start to notice, hey, you're one of his disciples, huh? And he's like, no, I don't know him. And he begins to curse. No, I don't know the man. Three times. And on the third time, the rooster crowed, just as Jesus said. And Peter remembers, oh, Jesus warned me and I failed. And Jesus looks at Peter and still loves him through it all. And the Bible teaches that Peter wept like no man has ever wept. But Peter restored him. Jesus restored him. In verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals, did you lack anything? So they said nothing. Then he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you that this which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he who was numbered with the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. So they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. So now in this last part, Jesus is preparing them for the trials. And he's saying not literally, look, grab swords, but there's an irony of, of Jesus saying it's enough. See, Jesus is, is saying, look, you're about to go through some heavy trials that you're going to be wanting and wishing that you had swords with you. So they pulled out the swords and said, okay, well, you have two swords. Here, look at, can we use these? And Jesus is like, it's enough, meaning that's not going to help you against the army of Rome that's going to come after you. Just two swords, it's not going to do anything. He could be speaking ironically. He also might be saying like, oh, man, like you guys are not, not grasping it. But that's okay because Jesus was gracious with them and he loved them and he's preparing them. He's preparing them for what's to come. Much like the way Jesus is preparing us. So with this, what is God preparing you for? Jesus is about to go to the cross and he's reminding us of fellowship, of communion, of what he did on the cross. But what is God preparing you for? You see, he left and sent the Holy Spirit upon us, his church, that we might go out and do the will of God in our lives. And what is that for you? Are you taking this time seriously, this time of quarantine, this time of of sickness, this time of unsurety? Are you preparing yourself? Are you allowing God to prepare you to be his warrior? You see, trials are promised to us as trials were promised to the disciples. But know this, that God has already won the battle. Romans teaches us that we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. And when it says that we're more than conquerors, the reason why it says more than conqueror is because the battle is already won. We don't have to worry if we're going to win or not this eternal battle, but we know that God has already gone before us. And he did so with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, dying on the cross for our sins. It's to give us freedom from sin, to give us freedom from fear, from doubt so that we can follow after him and be filled with the Holy Spirit, with joy, with peace, with comfort, and that we could share that with other people now. So I would encourage you, continue in your study of Jesus. Continue reading uh, the, the gospel. Read the last week of Jesus Christ. Prepare yourself. This Friday, we are going to be taking a look next at Jesus' prayer in the garden and how they whipped him. They arrested him. They whipped him. And we're going to take a look at the crucifixion scene. And we're going to remember uh, on this Good Friday what Jesus did on the cross for us 
to forgive us for our sins. So if you can, maybe get some sort of cracker or bread, um, whatever you guys have. It doesn't need to be exactly that. But something to, to remember the broken body of Jesus. And then it could, you could get, if you have juice at home, get, get your juice ready or your water for Friday. And as a, as a church, we're going to partake of, of communion together. And we're going to remember what Jesus did. What he did as forgiving us for our sins. And then on Sunday, we celebrate his resurrection. Now he's given us that new life. So be joyful. Be encouraged this week. Share with people, Jesus. If you're still out there in the workforce, in the front lines, we're praying for you. But remember to bring up Jesus' name. Remember you're out there as a light and salt and that Jesus loves you so much and that he has a plan for your life. Amen. Let's, uh, let's end with some prayer and some worship. Dear God, we come before you, Lord. I pray and I ask, Lord, if there's anyone, Father, who is struggling, Lord God, with their relationship with you, that you would give them freedom, Father, freedom from sin, freedom from fear, and from anxiety, that you would have their hearts set on you and you alone. I pray, Father, for those who are looking at this world as more important, Lord God, than the eternal. I pray that you'd give us a correct perspective of eternity and what you have in store for us. I pray and I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would change our desires, Father, to be more of what you want, Father. Help us to die to ourselves. I pray, Father, for those listening online, for those who are part of this church, Father, that you would keep us, Lord God, united in Christ. That you wouldn't allow us to, Father, fall away, Lord God. And that you would protect us, Lord God, in this life, that we would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Father, we love you. May we, our lives just be a, a reflection of worship. Father, you deserve all the, the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. And in Jesus' name, amen.
of the Lord our God. Oh, praise His name forevermore, for endless days we will sing Your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord our God. Oh, 